morning. We're uh, continuing a series, or you are in the uh, letters of John, so if you could uh, keep your Bible open to 2 John, that would be great. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we humble ourselves before you now because you've uh, spoken a clear word and ultimately spoken in your Son. Uh, Please help us to uh, continue to see his glory in a greater way and uh, grasp it more wholeheartedly. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Uh, Today we have a rating system for things like Uber and Airbnb. Uh, So you can tell how good and reliable a place is based on other people's published recommendations. And in the ancient world, there was a similar system. It was just a lot slower. With the rise of the Roman Empire, they brought much greater opportunity uh, for travel and commerce to far-flung places, largely because of the road network and their military protection of those roads. Uh, travel became much easier and safer. Uh, And this in turn led to the need for accommodation and restaurants. But initially anyway, some of these were pretty rough and many were just largely brothels. So most travellers tried to arrange private accommodation with friends or friends of friends. And so a whole etiquette developed around showing hospitality and what it meant to be a good host. And often people would write to friends about their experiences. But you should never abuse hospitality by motives such as greed or false pretenses or presumption. One of the greatest abuses of hospitality in the ancient world, according to the Greek author Homer, was when the Trojan prince... Paris seduced the Spartan queen Helen and so began the Trojan War. And there would be much embarrassment and shame if a recommendation went wrong, a bit similar to our idea of sponsorship. Uh, There were plenty of examples in modern sport of sponsorship deals gone wrong. So not too long ago, an AFL footy club got dropped by the drink driving uh, campaign because at least one well-known player from that club got caught significantly over the limit. It's fair to say that that does not send a good, consistent and truthful message. Part of John's message today is not only make sure you are walking in the truth and love of God yourself, But don't sponsor or partner with people who misrepresent Jesus by offering them hospitality and support to conduct their false uh, agenda and message. Don't participate in the propagation of a false Jesus. Uh, We're continuing in the letters of John and we see that So you would have seen the situation John was writing to that certain people whom John politely calls antichrists, that is people who are actually against Christ, had left the community of God's people to form a sect 
based on some mixture of the teaching of Jesus and Greek philosophy. And these people were trying to convince those who remained that they didn't have the full and true knowledge of God. We've found something better. We have this superior spirituality. You need to progress. And John wrote to encourage those remaining that they had the true gospel, of which he was a personal eyewitness, and they should not be distracted from the true gospel by what had happened. And so in his writings, he gives a number of tests that demonstrate what true knowing of God, Father, Son and Spirit, uh, looks like in practice. And the particular uh, way that these people tried to mix culture with gospel was that in Greek thinking, this material world is bad, it's, uh, it's evil. So how can God take on human flesh? And that's the sort of uh, area in which they went wrong. And 2 and 3 John seem to be written to specific churches, whereas 1 John was written to all the churches in the region that John was pastoring or shepherding. And this problem of trying to mix popular cultural ideas with the gospel is a temptation for every generation of believers. To try to make the gospel look like the culture. So to pick one example from our own time, there are those who would say in an age of science such as ours, it's unreasonable to believe that Jesus actually did real miracles and was physically raised from the dead. That's an unreasonable belief, according to some people. So we need to reinterpret these things or to put it, put it in the language of one New Testament scholar, we need to demythologise the Bible. Uh, we need to take out the unreasonable bits. And straight away we see the problem with that because what is reasonable varies from generation to generation. That's why John says, stay with the true Jesus, of whom he was a personal eyewitness. And at the start of 1 John, he says, he saw, heard and touched the word of life in human flesh. So as we look at the first three verses of 2 John, it stands out quite obviously that this sounds a lot like John's other writings. And in these verses we see John, as he prefers to do, keeps his name anonymous. Probably out of humility and the concern to magnify Jesus the Christ. He describes himself as an elder and he's writing to the elect lady which represents the church. The church is identified as a chosen woman and believers her children. And he describes them as people he loves in the truth, along with all those who have come to know the truth. And so really this highlights the big concerns and themes of John's letters. Know, truth, love, 
remain. And the situation rests upon an ongoing, uh, or his concern is that there be an ongoing or continuing in the truth. See, people can't be identified as believers if they don't continue in the truth. Gospel truth isn't isn't a loose affiliation of some general principles. It is a belief in a person who bears certain clearly defined characteristics and he represents God the Father accurately. He is the personification of love and truth. And he is this in such a way as to expose sinful human attempts at these things as the pathetic imitations and distortions that they are. So love for some now is so subjective or inward that it depends on what sort of day we're having and truth, where do you even start? When God loves and tells the truth, he sends his son into a world that hates him to give himself for those that are his enemies and insists that people listen to him for their own good, in spite of him being subject to all the patronising arrogance that sinful humanity can muster. One of the most ironic statements in the Bible is when Jesus is dying on the cross and people say he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. See, when God loves and tells the truth, this is what he does. And verse 3 hammers this home. The people who left the churches over which John had concern and was an elder have denied Jesus came in the flesh and that he died for sin. According to John here, they have left the orbit of God's love and truth. So you can't deny fundamental things about Jesus and be participants in the benefits of his saving actions. So when he describes grace, mercy and peace as being for those who remain in Jesus, these are not distinctly Christian concepts, but they find their ultimate meaning and expression in Jesus of Nazareth. See, you won't find a greater expression of these things somewhere else. You won't find more peace by worshipping money or pleasure. You won't find superior grace through salvation by keeping rules and seeking mystical experiences. You won't certainly won't find more mercy by entrusting yourself to humanity. But all these things are magnificently displayed and distributed in God's glorious Son. And what gives John great joy is that he has heard that some of the believers are walking in the truth, verse 4. Now this doesn't mean that others aren't, 
It just means that he has heard that some in particular are. And so in verses 4 to 6, we see a condensed version of John's three tests of genuine knowing of God. Truth, love and obedience. And we're reminded again that these things are integrated. Uh, If someone is walking in the truth of Jesus, they will not deliberately and actively disagree or disregard what he says. And the most basic of his commands is to love one another as he has loved us. See, fundamental to knowing God and walking in the truth is bearing the family likeness. And John has already stated that God is love. And we've also seen that love shouldn't be interpreted by our cultural standards, uh, but by the actions of God in Jesus. See, in the Bible, the emphasis on the word love is that it's a doing word, not primarily a feeling word. It acts for the good of others. It is motivated by, not motivated by the desirability of the object, in God's case, rebellious humanity. So we're encouraged here in continuing to walk in truth and love. The path in which we walk is a typical biblical way of describing how we live. And so we are to not turn to the right or the left, but keep walking according to God's revelation of the truth and love expressed in Jesus. And we uh, discussed how separating these things, truth, love and obedience, is dangerous. Uh, John Stott says it this way, our love grows soft if not strengthened by the truth, and our truth hard, if not softened by love. As soon as we start diminishing this, it doesn't end well. Or to use a MasterChef reference, a deconstructed lemon meringue pie might suit modern taste, but you cannot deconstruct these essential elements of a genuine knowing of God. At the time John was writing, the church as a whole was having its struggles, but not enough time had elapsed for so many false ideas to develop. We now live with the accumulated weight of centuries of false teaching, And some of it is persistent. We have so many denominations partly because trying to correct one problem has created other problems. Uh, This has happened to the extent that at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther said, I know the church is a whore, but she's my mother. But it's important to understand that the essential nature of these tests haven't changed. Truth, love and obedience are still primary characteristics of walking with Jesus. 
And the specific concerns of this book are not brought out so much in 1 John, seem to be focused here in this letter in verses 7 to 11. These seem to be a particular application of the principles uh, from all of John's writings. So verses 7 to 9 are a warning uh, to watch carefully concerning, concerning the teaching of those who left the church, claiming a greater or superior knowledge of God. Verses 7 to 9 express a particular urgency to apply the truth test. And we see a summary of what John said in his main letter of uh, 1 John. That is, these people are deceivers and antichrist because they deny basic things about Jesus. In this case, we've already seen they deny that he came in the flesh that is, as a real man, which of course has flow-on effects in that he then didn't die a real sacrificial death for sin. And since the time of John, there are many ways uh, which people are against Christ as he is taught to us from the apostles. Atheists are against Christ because they deny the existence of God, let alone God in human flesh. But atheists aren't as dangerous to solid believers in one sense, because they are usually honest about their position and not trying to deceive Christians. What's more dangerous is trying to mix popular ideology with the gospel so that it contains enough of the truth to look good. Far more deceptive are things that contain many elements of the truth. And so verse 8, the essential warning for them as us is watch yourselves, beware. And the reason he gives is that you may end up with a diminished reward for your work. Now, this troubles some people because, of course, as Protestants, we're always wary about ideas of working or reward in the context of salvation. It seems to undermine the idea of grace. But, of course, what this is saying is that once we have, by God's grace, become a believer, we then cooperate with God's word and spirit to walk in the truth. And as we know, this is a struggle. We're fighting our own ongoing sinful habits and inclinations. We can be persecuted by those who are hostile to the gospel. And to add to that, there are deceivers who want to divert us from Jesus the Christ. John's essential concern here seems to be that walking in the truth of Jesus Christ is not easy. So be very careful about not being led to the right or the left. And verse 9 particularly gives us more insight concerning uh, these deceivers or antichrists. 
who left the churches over which John was particularly involved. Basically, these people ran ahead of the teaching of Christ. If John was writing this today, he would probably use the buzzword progressive. Uh, Beware of those claiming to be spiritually progressive. Those who have progressed beyond the apostolic understanding of Jesus. Because not all progress is good. Technological process is good because humanity collectively continue to learn more about the world and can better utilise resources. But not all progress is good. There are many circumstances where running ahead is dangerous. So, for example, if you've got kids, you don't want them to run ahead and onto the road. The thing about progression is you need to know where you're going. You need to see the final outcome and you need at least to see some of the consequences. Personally, I don't know where Australia will be politically, economically or socially in 30 years from now. Hopefully Ying Ying's prayer is answered. But what we can know is what will happen spiritually if we stay with Jesus. If you leave Jesus behind, where are you going to go? Where are you going to get better truth about God? Where will you be loved with a more fierce and pure love? See, how can you add to Christ? If you try to add to something perfect, all you can do is detract from it and diminish it. You might end up believing in a progressive Christ, but he won't be the true Christ, which means, according to John here, that we don't have the Father because we cannot separate a true knowledge of God from the truth about Christ. And verses 10 to 11 are significant in that they draw out some important implications of this for his congregation. And the basic implication is don't sponsor such people. Uh, Don't show them hospitality. And we saw in the introduction the significance of what hospitality means in this particular context. And how at one level it amounted to endorsement of their activities. John is saying don't formally participate in their work by providing for them. And John goes as far as saying don't even greet them which probably means don't greet them in a Christian sense, as Christian brothers. And we saw a typical believing greeting back in verse 3. Grace, mercy and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
So you can't treat someone who mis greet someone who misrepresents Jesus with that greeting. This is what John's giving us here is a Christianized version of a typical form of greeting. Believers have a very particular understanding of the words grace, mercy and peace. Specifically, they relate to what God has done through Jesus. What John seems to be saying here is don't greet these people as believers. Don't endorse their work in any way. So for clarity, it's helpful to think about what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean... Don't think about other claims of truth or other ideologies. We must do that, otherwise how can we test them against the truth about Jesus? And we must be thinking people if we claim to understand the truth. This is not endorsing intellectual foolishness. What John is concerned about is not confusing what is true about Jesus with what is not. Is John being intolerant here? At one level, yes. At another, no. He's not saying don't engage people about their beliefs and be kind and loving to people who disagree with the gospel. However, this is saying don't sponsor or officially sanction false teachers, those who claim to be teaching about Jesus but in a distorted way. Don't give credibility or support in the church to those who are against the Christ of apostolic witness. So, for example, if a JW comes to the door, this is not saying don't invite them in to discuss the gospel if you're so inclined. But it is saying don't promote the Watchtower magazine at church. (laughs) Don't endorse their view of Jesus in any way as though they represent the true gospel. With the ministries hopefully you partner with here throughout the world at Mafra Community Church, hopefully you're confident that those ministries are walking in the truth and love of Jesus and are teaching others to walk in the truth and love of Jesus and hopefully we are purposeful about that. For us also, this doesn't mean don't... This means don't endorse or contribute to dodgy ministries. Certainly don't send them money The reason some ministry leaders drive Rolls Royces is because people send them money to do so. Verses 12 to 13, the final greeting, we see that John would rather be with those who share in the love and truth of Jesus. And COVID-19 taught us that, didn't it? That community without contact is abnormal. God's goal is to gather all his people together in the truth and love of his son. 
And John knows that as the church meets now, we anticipate the ultimate gathering, which is why even in the present, he wants to be with them, which is why he says, your elect sister greets you. All of God's people will be gathered and are one big family from all nations. And this is important in our time to understand, isn't it? It's interesting that the famous I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King back in uh, Washington, 1963, he didn't say people shouldn't be judged at all. What he did say is that his dream for the future is that, and I quote, my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. In a Christian sense, John would agree. I guess one important idea for how we think about this scripture for ourselves is that that if we or someone we know was going to leave Jesus behind, where would you go? What would you progress to? So the overall message for believers is a positive one. Don't be discouraged or intimidated by people who claim true knowledge of God is achieved through other means. True relationship with God is brought about by the person and message of Jesus. There are no hidden extras, no secret codes, no shortcuts around sin. No special technique. And because that is true, don't sponsor falseness. Don't confuse what is truly Christ-centred and what is not. Don't endorse things that are misleading or doubtful. Don Carson says it this way, the best way we deal with false teaching is by understanding and teaching the truth with great clarity. Which means keeping away from any endorsement of the doubtful and culturally convenient Jesuses that every generation seems to come up with. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you that you've spoken by your apostles whom you appointed to be the official eyewitnesses of your work and your words. Uh, We thank you that these have been recorded for us by the help of your spirit. Uh, Please help us to take on board uh, this message today uh, to be confident that we have the true gospel through the apostolic witness as uh, your spirit causes us uh, to be transformed in our hearts and renewed in our thinking. Please help us be those who can uh, identify uh, the truth of the gospel from uh, distortions and help us to be those who continue to walk in the truth and love of your glorious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.